Hello, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to episode number two of Beat the Clock with Ty and Kai. The day of this recording is November 6, 2022. We apologize once again to our listeners for missing last week's episode, and we're happy to announce that everything is well where the previous family emergency is concerned. The podcast is able to continue perfectly as normal, so let's get started. In this episode, we've got quite a bit to unpack as we'll be going over at least one game from every day of basketball since our first episode. We'll also be adding in our own comments and ideas about the teams in the games and how they looked on both ends of the floor. With that being said, buckle up and enjoy. The first game we will be talking about comes on October 22nd. Mavericks 137 to the Grizzlies 96. Mavericks leading scorer was Luka Magic with 32 points, 7 rebounds, and 10 assists. The second top performer on the Mavs actually came off the bench and it was Kristen Woods with 25 points, 10 rebounds, and 3 assists. Following that, Spencer Dinwiddie had 15 points, 2 rebounds, and 2 assists. And Tim Hardaway Jr. had 16 points, 2 rebounds, and 2 assists. In the first quarter, the Mavericks had a 20-4 run on the Grizzlies. Starting off with the Grizzlies, John Morant, as usual, was the leading scorer for the Grizz. He had 20 points, a rebound, and 4 assists. Bain followed closely behind with 14-5-4. and four. And David Roddy had 12-3-1. The most notable scorer for the Grizz off the bench was Tyus Jones with 10 points and 5 assists. And of course we have to mention Brandon Clark did well with 8-3-1. The Grizzlies ended up losing this game by over 40 points. And I think a big part of that is missing Jaron Jackson and Dylan Brooks. That was a big problem for the Grizz in the game, especially down the stretch. What do you think about that, Malachi? Those two are a big impact. I said on the first episode... Brooks is a great defender, so that would have limited Luka a little. He would have been on Luka. Luka will always get his own. He is very talented. Jackson is a good outside shooter, and he would have helped with rebounding. So it would have limited. I don't know how big it would have changed the outcome, but it would have made a difference. I definitely don't think they would have lost by 41 points if they had Dylan Brooks and Jaron Jackson. It would have been a closer game. Mavericks may have still won. We will see. Probably down the road, they probably will play again. Jumping into Game 2 on October 23rd, Jazz 122 to the Pelicans 121 in overtime. The Jazz leading scorer was Markinen, who actually had 31 points, 12 rebounds, and 2 assists. I actually rarely have ever heard this guy until today, which is a little crazy. He also... Had two steals and a block on the defensive end. Followed by that was Kelly Olenek, which is crazy to me because I always think of Boston Kelly Olenek. But he had 20 points, three rebounds, and five assists. Following that, Jordan Clarkson also had a great game, coming up with 18 points, one rebound, and six assists. Vanderbilt was also very impressive. He's the last big star or player I would notice on this Jazz lineup. He had 15 points and four boards and an assist. But even more impressive, he also had four steals on the defensive side. Also a big thing to notice was every Jazz starter except Kenny Olenek had a block in this game. Going on to the Pelicans, CJ was the Pels' leading scorer with 28 points, 4 boards, and 12 assists. He was able to facilitate the offense really well all game. Zion followed up with 25, 6-1. Unfortunately, he did end up injured in this game after a bad fall. Um, Brandon Ingram really only contributed 10 points versus the Jazz, and you have to think a big game from him might have been the difference maker in overtime. 
One thing that I was really surprised about was Trey Murphy the third contributed 16 points in this game off the bench for the Pelicans. Olenek hit a go-ahead scoop with three seconds left to put the Jazz up in this game after some Markman free throws. The Jazz bench combined for 31 points in this game. You know, it's interesting that you mentioned the Jazz bench. Um, the Pelicans bench was even crazier with 43 points this game, which was a, an outscore margin of uh, 12 then for the Pelicans. I heard you earlier mention about Kelly, I believe Markinen. Markinen, you said that you hadn't even heard of him up until this point. Um, which I think is really funny because I followed him when he was on the Bulls. And before that, I don't remember who he was drafted by, but he was on another team before that. And I always thought this guy had the, has the frame and the size and the skill to be a great player in the league because he's always had a shot. He's always been very consistent from the free throw line. And he's great in the post. And I'm really surprised that you hadn't heard of him because he's got a lot of talent and skill. With them winning by the Olenek Bucket one in overtime, what do you think about this Jazz team? I mean, on our first episode, we kind of wrote them off as the quote-unquote regular season Jazz. I think that's what I said. But they're proving that they might actually be a real threat in the West. What do you think? I feel like every year they come out strong, and they normally finish in the top four. But when it hits the playoffs... They're nowhere to be seen. So I will still say they're the regular season Jazz until they prove me wrong in the postseason. What do you think about them like seriously having no real like star player? I actually really enjoy it. It's more of a team ball play then instead of like the Mavericks. They really only have Luka, so you're watching the game for Luka. Where with the Jazz, they're all playing the play. I think they're not as defensively oriented as the Bad Boy Pistons, but I think you can draw a lot of comparisons to them in that there was really no big star for the Bad Boy Pistons, and they went on to win. I don't remember exactly how many championships. I think it was like two or three. I think the Jazz are really similar to that team in that they've all got guys who are willing to play, willing to struggle. They're willing to do whatever it takes in crunch time. I just think they're all really willing and able guys, and I really like that about them. Yeah. A big thing in this game, would I would say, would be Zion's injury, which caused him to be eliminated a little. Zion, throughout this year so far, has actually been playing very well. So I think the outcome would have been a little different if he could have played. Yeah, and you have to also wonder, too, like with Brandon Aram only giving 10 points, like how different would it have been if Zion was on the floor? They only lose by one in overtime. That's crazy. With Brandon Aram only giving 10 points and they only lose by one? That's insane to me because if Zion was in this game, you can bet he would have added at least two more points to get them the win. Easily. they He would have at least added at least five points to me and rebounds, which would change it for the Pelicans. Game three is on October 24th. It's the Nets versus Grizzlies. Nets 124 to the Grizzlies 134. Nets duo Kyrie and KD both had 37. Kyrie also had eight rebounds with five assists, with KD having five rebounds and four assists. Following them was Claxton with 16 points, 7 rebounds, and 2 blocks. Moving on to the Grizzlies, uh, notables were John Moran and Desmond Bain, and they both combined for 38 points apiece in this game. Ja also had 8 rebounds and 7 assists, whereas Bain had 1 board and 7 assists. Ja contributed 2 steals this game, and I have to say I love that he's so good on the offensive and the defensive end. I also want to mention Santi Aldama, who was the third most important offensive contributor for the Grizzlies with 17 points and four rebounds. Going back to the Nets, the Nets shot nine for 29 from threes. After their top three we mentioned, they had five 
players who played 15 minutes or more combined for 34 points, and 19 of those points were coming off the bench. Addressing the Grizzlies bench, um, Brandon Clark came up big offensively. He scored in double digits with 13 and contributed two boards and two assists. I wanted to note, too, Steve, Steven Adams was his usual self in the paint. He was dominating the smaller Nets lineup. He had nine points and 13 boards, and he also contributed a steal and a block. Notably, the Grizzlies had 16 three-pointers this game, with 12 of them being from Bain and Moran. Brooks is still out on the injured reserve, and the Grizzlies had a dominating third quarter. They started out on a 17-2 run. Most notably, mentioning the third, the Grizzlies outscored the Nets 45-28. to Next, does Bum Ben Simmons need to step up? He only had 7 points, 3 rebounds, and 8 assists in 20 minutes. 20 plus minutes of playing with job baiting Ben to foul out with nine minutes and 44 seconds left in the fourth quarter when they were down by 11. I got to be honest with you. I mean, as a Sixers fan, I was never a big Ben Simmons guy. I always said we should trade him before anybody else. Even when we had Toby and Jimmy, um, I don't like Ben Simmons. So my bias is going to show through in answering this question. However, absolutely. He needs to step up. He's a piece of garbage. Ben Simmons is literally a bum. I don't even understand how this guy made away with the contract that he made away with when he was on the Sixers because he is literally trash. I'm six foot one, 280 pounds, and I could go out there and play better than Ben Simmons for the Brooklyn Nets any day of the week. I'm so tired of this guy being considered an all-star in the league. I don't even think he's like worthy of a bench spot. Like He should be out of the league, to be honest. It's crazy that they call Brooklyn a big three because Ben Simmons is on the team because hit is not a big three. If anything, Spencer Dinwiddie is the third option on that Nets team. And Ben Simmons is like the eighth option behind like Nick Claxton and some other dudes. I hate to say this. I actually am a Ben Simmons fan. I actually had his jersey, which I'm surprised I didn't burn it because it's a Sixers jersey of him. He is very good defensively, which I take very important. I thought if he developed a jump shot, he could have been the next LeBron. But we clearly see he does not want to do that. So it will be interesting to see how his career plays out because the NBA is changing more to a three-point game. To finish out, uh, moving on from Bum Ben Simmons, this would be the first time that both teams have multiple 35-point scores since 1983. I think that's pretty crazy. Um, It's really insane that we haven't seen this happen in over almost 40 years now, coming up on 40 years and for it to happen in a um, a Nets-Grizzlies game, like if we look back a couple years ago, we never would have thought that. I think it's crazy just how much the NBA landscape has changed in the last few years. If you told me in the next four years, like in 2018, that the Nets would be would have Kyrie, Katie, and Ben Simmons, and the Grizzlies would have this insane athletic D-Rose-like point guard and this really good like guy in Desmond Bain, I would not have believed you. I would have thought you were absolutely capping. There would be no way I would believe you. Yet here we are, the Grizzlies in the top of the West. The Nets are not in the top of the East, but still a formidable team with KD and Kyrie. And I'm not Bum Simmons, but the rest of the team. Yeah, it was crazy with Kyrie and KD both having 37, and John and Bain both having 38. Game 4 on October 25th. Suns 134 to the Warriors 105. This was a blowout win for the Suns. Their top scorer, of course, was D-Book. With 34 points, 7 assists, 2 rebounds, and 3 steals while shooting 11 for 14 from the free throw line. 
Following D-Book was Miles Bridges with 17 points, 6 rebounds, and he recorded a steal and 2 blocks. Then Paul and Aiton both had 16 with Aiton having 14 boards. Along with that, and 4 assists, and Paul had 9 assists and 7 rebounds to go along with his 16 points. The Suns are scary, I will say that. Um, the Warriors definitely struggled in this game. Not only did they lose by 29 points, their top scorer was Curry, and he only had 21, 7 rebounds, and 8 assists. I'd say they lost to arguably their biggest rival in the West, and this game started a losing spree that now has the Warriors as of the 6th, sitting in the bottom three teams in the West, which is something I did not expect. Yeah, that is very crazy, thinking of how the Warriors were last year, expecting them to be the same. The crazy thing is the Suns only had one starter who didn't score 16 points or more in this game, which was Cam Johnson, who struggled this game shooting. He was 3-for-11 on the field and 1-for-6 from three-point line, who is normally a good shooter. Well, in stark contrast to Cam Johnson, who is really great from the three-point line, Jordan Poole was the second-leading scorer, and he continues to come off the bench, which is, honestly, I think he would be better in the starting unit alongside all the ball movement that they have. That's just my opinion. But uh, he finished with 17 points, two boards, and five assists. And then Andrew Riggins was right behind him with 16, six boards, and three assists. I want to point out that Draymond was also actually, for once, a notable scorer in this game. He had uh, 14 and contributed eight boards, five assists, and three steals. But he did have five turnovers, which is a season high for him thus far. Yeah, going back on Jordan Poole, I think it's crazy he's not a star yet, but I do see just because Jordan Poole has that spark that Clay doesn't have that they keep him on the bench. Going back to the Suns, the Suns shot 51.1% on the field and 42% from the three. That is a great shooting night for them, and they also out-rebound the Warriors 48-40 to and had two fewer turnovers than them. Yeah, I think what's really great about the, the Suns team, not only that they're, they have low turnovers per game typically, but they actually have in DeAndre Aiden a big that can go up and like grab boards, like an old-style big. Like, there's not many teams in the league that have that anymore. I'm not going to say he's on the level of like JoJo or, or Nikola Jokic, but like he's a big body who can actually go up and fight for rebounds. And a lot of these teams in the West don't have that. He's like a Steven Adams. I look yeah. at Steven Adams as a bully who grabs rebounds, which Aiden does. Yeah, Aiden's great at that, and I think he even has a little bit better of a post game than Adams. Uh, to finish up, the Warriors and the Suns, I want to mention, both had issues with technicals. Most notably, they were Thompson and Booker. Thompson only scored two points in this entire game, and he received two technicals back-to-back after a disagreement with Booker. So Thompson got ejected, obviously, after the second tech, and Booker was given one technical as a result of the altercation. I think a big part of this is, as a result of the ejections, uh, the Suns' lead grew up to 19 points, and the Warriors could just not mount a comeback after the third. And the lead just continued to grow from there for the Suns. How big of an impact do you think, had Thompson not been ejected, even though he only had two points all game up to this point, do you think that he could have been a contributing factor and maybe helped the, the Warriors win this game? With how good of a shooter Clay is, it would have made a difference. But Booker is very good at talking trash. When he is on, he will talk his trash. And it does get people to get a little out of the norm, which Clay was who received two technicals back-to-back. 
Game 5 on October 26, Raptors 119 to the Sixers 109. The Raptors' top scorer was Gary Trent Jr. with 27 points, and he had two steals while shooting 11 for 16 on the field and went 5 for 10 from threes. He shot 69% the whole game. That's crazy. Following Trent was Pascal Siakam with 20 points, 5 rebounds, and 13 assists. That 13 assist is Pascal Siakam's career high. It was Scotty Barnes' first game back, and he also contributed for 16 points. Talking about the Sixers, um, Joel Embiid was the Sixers' leading scorer. He had 31 points, 5 rebounds, and 3 assists. But I have to say, Embiid seriously needs it up, needs to step it up on the rebounding side of the game. There's no reason for him to have five boards against a team like the Raptors with no bigs that can face him in the paint. Maxi had 31, which matched Embiid, and he contributed five boards and four assists, and along with two steals and a block on the defensive end. Harden showed up as usual with 18, 7, and 9, but the Sixers, as of this game, had lost for the fourth time in their most recent five games. What do you think about that? To me, it's crazy. I thought the Sixers were going to be a lot better. I thought the Sixers would come out hot after they said Harden lost 100 pounds and them having something to prove after getting eliminated last year. But going back to the Raptors, their starting five in this game all had 15 points or more with only nine turnovers in this game. They also out-rebound the Sixers 39-34 to and the team shot 54.8%, which is a very solid outing for the Raptors. They also had 32 assists, which is a season high for them so far, and Freddie Fran Fleet had 10 of his 15 in the fourth quarter alone. Yeah, Fred Van Fleet is like one of those, is like a Kyle Lowry-esque kind of guy. Like, I remember all the time there were these crazy stats where Kyle Lowry would somehow magically put up like 15 of his 20 points in the fourth. And it, it Fred Van Fleet has really just filled that role for the Raptors now that Lowry's gone. Like, he comes out and he'll have like such a mediocre game. And then the fourth quarter hits and he turns into freaking Chris Paul. It amazes me every time. And he's hitting shots from, like, Logo and all this other crowd. Things you would never expect him to be doing, but he's so good at that. Yeah, the only big thing I would say the difference between him and Lowry is Fran Fleet's three-point shooting is a lot better than Kyle Lowry's. I would agree. I would agree. Um, wrapping it up with the Sixers, I think they're slacking on the defensive end. I actually looked up a stat uh, as of this game when I watched it. Their opponents averaged 111 points in each game so far this season as of this day. And this Raptors team is nearly identical to the team that the Sixers knocked out in the playoffs last year. I think this loss is inexcusable, and the defense of the Sixers so far is inexcusable. When I watch the games, I see guys standing around on defense. You have guys that are corner shooters that just watch. They just watch. They take four steps back, five steps back, and just watch these guys get past the ball. It's really frustrating to watch the Sixers, and I don't know what needs to be done to motivate this team to play defense. Yeah, right now it also doesn't help Joel is sick, so we don't have a great post defender. Well, but he was in this game. You're right. The next question is then, is it a coaching thing? Do you, I mean, I hate to pull this up because the Phillies ended up losing. The Phillies fired their manager. They went to the World Series. Is it a spark of that needs a change to boost them? I don't know, because I think Doc Rivers is a great coach. But if you look at his past, he's only won in the championships one time. He's been to the finals many times. And he has a serious problem getting out of the semifinals. If the Sixers are starting off this bad, 
with this squad at the beginning of the season, I'm really concerned for the postseason. And I keep reading these things where the players are saying, oh, we just got to figure it out. We just need time to figure it out. You've had time. This roster has been assembled for quite some time. The main core of this roster is the same guys we had last year. So in what way are we not ready to play Philadelphia basketball? I don't understand it at all. Yeah, the only thing that changed was our bench and then adding P.J. to our starting lineup, which P.J. is a great corner three, so it shouldn't have even changed that much for them to need time. I completely agree. I don't understand where they're saying they need these changes. Game 6, October 27th. Mavs 129 to the Nets 125 in overtime. Luka Magic once again recording a triple-double having 41 points 14 assists and 11 rebounds with three steals while shooting 50% from the field and 11 from 13 from the free throw line. He only had one other starter with double digits, and that was Spencer with 11 points, five assists, and three rebounds. This game was the Mavericks' first road victory of the season, and Luka also made history being the 10th player in NBA history with three 40-point triple-doubles. I got to tell you, I mean, I called it in the first season. This guy is different. Luka Magic is different. He has the potential to be the best player the NBA has ever seen, the greatest of all time, and I'm going to stand by that. If he stays healthy, and if this Mavericks team can surround him with good players, he could easily win like eight championships in his career. I have no doubt about that, even with all the competition in the NBA. The crazy thing about Luka is when you watch him, he looks so unathletic. He looks so slow and all like that. But he beats everyone. He beats you down. He picks you apart. And he balls. It's crazy. He's a god. Moving over to the Nets. Um, Durant and Irving both had great games. Um, Irving had 39 points, 7 rebounds, and 4 assists. And Durant had 37 points, 3 rebounds, and 5 assists. Behind them... The next closest scores were Royce O'Neal and David Duke Jr. off the bench, both contributing 10 points. So needless to say, outside of Irving and Durant, the Nets' offense, much like the Mavericks, was really a no-show in this game. The Mavs' bench showed up, though. Four of their five guys on the bench had 10 or more points, combining for 54 bench points for the Mavs. Yeah, I think that's pretty crazy. I don't think I've seen 54 bench points you know, in a really long time. The Nets, though, they ran a nine-man rotation this game. The Nets' entire bench combined for 25, which I think, again, is a huge detriment to their offense compared to what the Mavs bench was able to put out. Really importantly, the Mavs led by two with less than a minute remaining in the game, and they did appear to have the win sealed because Durant got called for a goaltend on a Doncic layup. But after a review, the play was overturned and, surprisingly, Bum Ben Simmons had a big steal on Doncic, and Durant scored a game-tying dunk. So then with 8.8 seconds left on the clock, Doncic passed to Bullock, and his jumper missed, which caused OT. I want to point out Ben Simmons making that steal. Despite that, Simmons was once again a lackluster player for the Nets. That's just the trend of his career. He scored 7 points, 8 boards, and 4 assists. He's consistently a low-impact player, and he always makes mistakes throughout the course of the game. Where does he stand with the net? Should they look to offload this guy? He fits Kyrie and Durant 
because he doesn't look to score. Durant and Kyrie look to score. Ben is more their defensive guy. Ben is a great defensive player, which is how he came up with that steal. But I don't know how down the road it will work out for the Nets. Well, think about it. Luka Doncic had 41 points, a 41-point triple-double in this overtime game. If Ben Simmons was such a good defender, he's more athletic, he's longer, he's taller, he's quicker. How can he not defend Luka Doncic? Not to mention the Nets also have seven-foot Kevin Durant. Like, how is Luka Magic going off for 41 points if Ben Simmons is such a good player? If, if Luka, we were talking about how good Luka is. If you set screens and help him get open, him hitting his shots will get him that. It's easy to throw a defender off in the NBA. You have to set screens, you move off ball, which Ben sometimes lacks on his off-ball defense. But Luka being so good, even on a good defender, he'll score 40. Uh, uh, 40? Maybe 30. But on a, on a guy who was a candidate for the DPOY, there should be no excuse in a regular season game for Luka Magic to have a 41-point triple-double in overtime. With Ben Simmons on your team. It's because it was bum, bum Ben Simmons. Exactly. Guy. That's my point. <laughs> Another crazy thing about the Mavs, as a team, they shot 50.6% from the field and 50 from the threes. But they did get out-rebound by the Nets and had more turnovers than them. Game 7 on October 28th, the most excited game to talk about. Cavs 132 versus the Celtics 123. In OT, and the Cavs did not have... Garland. The two players that stand out for this Cavs team was Lavert and Donovan Mitchell. They both had 41. Lavert, with his 41, had seven assists, four rebounds, and three steals, while Mitchell had four rebounds and three assists. And he dunked on Luke Gornett, which was crazy. This was the first time since 2016 Cavs had had two players with 40 plus points. I got to be honest with you, Spite is balling in Cleveland. I mean, he's crazy. He is crazy. He's doing so well. He looks so much better than he looked even in Utah. Like, I know both teams are a small market, and I don't see many games from both teams. I did watch this one. But just like Spite is popping off for this Cavs team. He fits so well. Switching over to the Celtics, uh, the most notable players for the Celtics offensively were, of course, the dynamic duo of Tatum and Brown. Both combined for a total of 64 points and had 32 apiece. Tatum contributed 7 boards and 4 assists as well, whereas Brown had 8 boards and 4 assists. Brown added 2 steals to its stat sheet, while Tatum added a block and steal. And the rest of the Celtics starters nearly all contributed double-digit points, and Derek White was the only exception. He only had 9 points. crazy thing about this game was the Cavs trailed by as many as 15 in the first half. Boston scored 75 points points in the first half which is crazy going into half the Cavs were down by 13 to a good Celtics team I think what's even crazier is that both of these teams despite the Celtics scoring 75 they both had over 50 points in the first half this was not a game where defense was played I can tell you that much this was like an offensive showdown the Celtics bench was really solid they combined for a total of 27 points and this is in a stark contrast to the Cavs bench where they only scored a combined 15 points in a nine-man rotation. The Celtics shot really well as a team from three-point as well, with 39.4%. Despite their excellent shooting, the Cavs shot even better, making 16 of 35 from the arc. 
that was 45.7% from three. And this shooting is clearly what gave him an edge on the seas down the stretch. Going back to the Cavs shooting, Cavs as a team shot 51.7% from the field while out-rebounding Boston 42-34 to and had fewer turnovers than Boston. Lavert, also a big thing, scored the last 11 points in the game, outscoring Boston in overtime. Yeah, that was really interesting. I didn't think that would come from Karis Lavert, but it did. Um, just to close out, um, the Celtics, they did play actually in the first half with those 75 points. And what's even crazier about that is that the Cavs actually have the league's second highest rated defense. And that shows just how offensively dangerous the Celtics are. Game 8, October 29th. Grizzlies 123 without jaw to the Jazz 124. Grizzlies, Bain and Brooks were the stars for the Grizzlies in this one. Bain having 32 points, 6 rebounds, and 2 assists. And he also had a block and a steal. While Brooks had 30 points, Four assists, two rebounds with three steals. Dude, Brooks is crazy on the defensive end. I like his game so much. Adding three steals with that stat line is like this is like a Kawhi Leonard type guy for real. I'm just saying, I called it in game in the first one we had. I said Brooks will be their biggest defensive part, and Baines would be their second offensive guy. For sure, you did say that. I'll give you that. Um, going over to the Jazz, for some reason. Olenek and Markinen continue to be bright spots for the Jazz. With each player scoring 23 points, they combined for 46. Olenek had a great game defensively. He added two steals and three blocks, but he also had four turnovers. So that, has, that is important to note. He had uh, three rebounds and four assists, and Markinen had nine boards and five assists. And Markinen also added a steal and a block. These two young guys are, like, balling. I mean, I knew Kelly Olenek was capable of, like, being a 15-a-game guy, you know, back when he was on the Heat and stuff. They just didn't use him in that way. And I always thought Markinen had the potential to be something great. But I have to be honest with you. I didn't think they'd find their stroke in Utah, of all places. Yeah, of all places, Utah with Rudy leaving and Mitchell leaving. Like, this is a shocker. Absolutely. Going back to the Grizzlies. Grizzlies, on paper, you would have thought they would have won. Out. They out-rebound the Jazz 40-34, and the Grizzlies' field goal percentage was better, and they also took more shots than the Jazz. The thing that beat the Grizzlies were they gave up 19 threes to the Jazz. Yeah, I mean, that's awful, because the Grizzlies have a great perimeter defensive team, especially with Brooks. I think the biggest thing was they were missing Ja, and I, I know we mentioned in the first episode, even with Ja being super talented offensively, he's also a great defender. That athleticism he has comes in handy a lot on the defensive end. I love watching Jaw chase down blocks with two hands, pinning them against the backboard. He's so crazy. I will say the whole of this Jazz team played great, with Clarkson and Sexton adding 21 and 19 respectively. And off the bench, Beasley and Alexander Walker had 12 and 11. And the Jazz played only a nine-man rotation this game. The biggest thing for me was Olenek had some big plays including a huge three-pointer with just a minute on the clock to put the Jazz up by one late in the fourth. Markkinen did have an opportunity to seal the game but missed the layup, which would have definitely sealed the game, but it did give the Grizzlies a chance. Despite that, they did manage to find the win by one, and I have to be honest with you, I wasn't expecting that based on how well the Grizzlies were playing in this game without Ja. I was not expecting it at all. I thought without Ja. They actually normally play very well, so I thought 
the Grizzlies would get this, but I mean, the regular season Jazz balled out again. They looked like a well-oiled machine, offensively and defensively, both these teams, but man, Markinen and Olenek just sealed the deal. Game 9, October 30th. What a shocker. Lakers 121 to the Nuggets 110. LeBron was the leading scorer with 26 points, 8 assists, and 6 rebounds. Following him was the Brow with 23 points, 15 rebounds, and 2 assists. After those two was the hometown guy from Reading, PA, Lonnie Walker with 18 points, 5 rebounds, and he also had a 2 blocks and a steal. I gotta be honest, I'm impressed with uh, Mr. Mr. Plainclothes. Mr. Plainclothes Anthony Davis actually suiting up for more than five games in a row for the Lakers this season. Never would have thought that. Going over to the Nuggets, Jokic was the leading scorer with 23-4-5, and and Murray followed close behind with 21-4-5. Aaron Gordon, when he was on the Magic, was not really that much of a big-time guy, but he's showing up for the Nuggets. He had um, 18, and young guy MPJ followed close behind him with 17. And despite the great offensive output from the starters, the Nuggets' bench was weak, and they combined for only 22 points compared to the Lakers' bench combining for 41. Yeah, that is a little crazy. Lakers' bench outscored Nuggets' bench 41-22. to Tyler, do you think it was a smart idea of the Lakers to move Westbrook to the bench? And if so, why? I do. I, ha- I have to say I do because Russell Westbrook cannot operate on the floor with other stars. The only reason he could do it with KD and the Thunder was because he didn't yet experience what it was like to play by himself on the floor as being the only superstar. And it's proven. It's it's shown when the Lakers moved him to the bench, he's been playing well. That proves my theory that I talked about in the first episode of the podcast, that he just doesn't know how to play with other stars. He really doesn't. He got so in his head when he averaged a triple-double those couple seasons in OKC was the only superstar player on that team. And it shows that he has forgotten how to work as a unit. He just puts up his own shot. It's crazy to think Westbrook went from a guy averaging a triple-double and was so dominant like that to where he is now. Well, look at guys like Carmelo Anthony. I mean, at one point, he was one of the best in the league. And he refused to play that bench role for however long. Then he came back and did it for the Trailblazers and was like a 15-points-a-game guy. So... That definitely proves that if these stars are willing to change their mindset and play a different game, they can be great again. Switching over to the Nugs, uh, they shot pretty bad with a team combined 42.7% field goal. They struggled from beyond the arc too, which they shot only 37.5% on 40 attempts. I honestly believe that they'll have to find a better rhythm as a team if they hope to stay a top team in the West. What do you feel about that? I do agree. The Nuggets do need to improve their shooting with how the West is going. They do need to improve. Game 10, October 31st, Halloween night. Hawks 109 versus the Raptors 139. Ling's scorer was Murray with 20 points with having 9 assists and 4 rebounds. Following him was Trey Young with 14 points, 10 assists, and 1 steal. And Collins having 12 points, 12 rebounds, and a steal. All Hawks starters had double-digit points. I think the Hawks are like honestly a real threat in the East. I think they're not playing to their potential. Like with guys like Trey Young only having 14 points and 10 assists, I think he really needs to step it up on the offensive end and show his shooting, especially considering they lost by 30 points to the Raptors. 
we kind of clowned on them in week one saying that they were like bottom of the East, but they've proven so far that they're really solid. I have to say Pascal Siakam was the leading scorer and he had 33 points, nine boards and four assists. Fred Van Fleet also contributed 26 points, four boards and had 11 assists. This goes back to what we were saying earlier, like Fred Van Vliet filling in that offensive initiator role for Lowry. OG Ananobi also was a defensive stalwart. He contributed two blocks and two steals along his eight points and ten rebounds. Almost every Raptors starter had double-digit points with Ananobi's eight being the only one that held them back. That is crazy thinking all around the Raptors. I thought they would be lower in the East, but they've... Always come and prove me wrong. Going back to the Hawks, Trey Young in this game was 3 for 13 on the field with 10 turnovers. Was not a good outing for Ice Trey on Halloween. Hawks had 18 team turnovers, which means 10 of them were Trey Young's. Raptors had 7. Very hard to win a game when you have that many turnovers. Yeah, I think the Hawks are such a young team. And I wanted to say Halloween night, Trey Young should have dressed up as a brick because that was pretty much what he was doing all night. Um, it's really hard as a young team like the Hawks to keep your turnovers low. But conversely, like the Raptors only have playoff pedigree one year. Like Siakam's only got one chip. I think Fred Van Vliet's the most experienced guy on that team in the playoffs. These guys are not like super long-time vets on this team. There's a lot of young guys. So to have that many turnovers on one guy, Russell Westbrook doesn't even turn the ball over 10 times a game. He has, though. I mean, he has, but he doesn't he, usually. He definitely has more than 10 times. But. I'm sure he has. Same with James Harden. But Trey Young just can't be the guy who does that, especially not when he's like pulling up from the logo and missing three for 13. God, that's awful. The Raptors bench, though, as a whole, didn't play well. They had a nine-man rotation, but Boucher and Ochoa each contributed double digits. So the measly 23 from the bench was more than enough to get it done. Game 11, November 1st, Bulls 108 versus the Nets 99. Zach Levine is back and proved himself after this game, scoring 29, 3, and 5. He had a very solid game, and he was the leading scorer for the Bulls. Following up by DeRozan with 20 points, 4 boards, and then 1 assist, Io continues to prove himself worthy of the NBA starting spot as a rookie, putting up 17 points, 3 rebounds, and 4, sl- four assists, along with 3 steals. DeRozan also had three steals. Defensively, the Bulls as a team had eight steals this game. There aren't many teams that you see can come out and put up eight steals as a team. That's pretty crazy. Like Usually it's like a couple guys that have like one or two, and that's about it. You get like three to four steals. To have eight is pretty good. Durant, though, as always, showed up. He was the Nets' leading scorer with 32 points, nine rebounds, and six assists, and he paired that up with a steal and two blocks. I will say he had seven turnovers, though, which is pretty dog shit. Irving was nowhere to be found this entire game with four points, six boards, and seven assists. And Royce O'Neal was the second scorer for the Nets with 20 points, five rebounds, and three assists. During this game, the Bulls played a nine-man rotation with the bench contributing to a total of 23 points combined. Dragic was the only bench player in double figures with 15 points, two rebounds, and two assists. Last year, they were saying he was washed when he got traded. He is not washed. Goran Dragic can still ball really well. He was solid for the Heat. Yeah, he was. I really like him. Like he's probably like one of my favorite like older point guards because he has that similar to like Steve Nash kind of style. Like he's just a traditional 
point guard, sees the floor really well, plays good defense, can shoot the ball. Like I really like Dragic. Um, finally, the Nets had one double-digit bench player with Yuri Watanabe scoring 10. Patty Mills literally only had nine points. He had nothing else in the stat sheet. No assists, no rebounds, no steals, not even a turnover to put on here, which I thought was really interesting because Patty Mills is not a pure scorer at all. And you would figure if he's not doing literally anything else on the floor, he'd have more than nine points. Game 12, November 2nd, Celtics 113 to the Cavs 114 in overtime. Jalen Brown was a leading scorer for Boston, having 30 points while having eight rebounds and four assists. To go along with his dynamic duo, Jason Tatum, having 26 points, 12 rebounds, six assists, and four blocks. Then Smart with 16 points, 6 rebounds, and 5 assists. I have to say, I did not expect Tatum to have 4 blocks in a game ever. His defensive showing on this game was like nothing I'd ever seen. Like He was locking up multiple guys on the Cavaliers. I think he was on, I believe, Spida for most of the game. Dude, he shut him down. And I know Smart was switching off Spida as well. They did really well locking up Garland and Spida. Um, speaking of Garland, actually, he's a big piece of this Cavs offense, and this was his first game back versus the Celtics. It's good that he did so well because he added 29 points, 5 boards, and 12 assists, and was a huge piece of them winning this game in OT. He filled up the staff sheet and ran the Cavs offense to near perfection. It's worth noting that every single Cavalier starter scored in double digits, which showed the Celtics up. Mitchell was the second leader for the Cavs with 25, 4, and 6. Going back to the Boston side, Boston in this game actually out-rebound Cleveland 52-51, to but they had three more turnovers, Boston with 14 and the Cavs having 11. Also, Boston shot terrible from the three, going 11 for 41, which is 26.8% from the three. I don't even understand how Jalen Brown and Jason Tatum had the points they did shooting that poorly. Like, as a team, they shot awful from three. Like, that is not the Celtics team we've seen this year. Which is ultimately what led to, I think this is only their second loss so far in the regular season. I have to say, the weakest part of this Cavs team was the bench. They only added 16 points to the score. Despite this, even with the starters making up for the glaring weakness, and that was that both teams shot terribly from three. In fact, the Cavs had almost as bad of a three-point percentage as Boston, they went 11 for 39, which was only 28.2%. Well, ladies and gentlemen, that concludes episode number two of Beat the Clock with Ty and Kai. We thank you as always for listening, and we'll see you next week. Bye-bye. <laughs> <laughs>